All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series, produced in partnership with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Quite often, and many of our most famous decisions are ones that the court took that were quite uh, unpopular. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. Good evening and welcome to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. Tonight, Brandenburg versus Ohio. This 1969 case, uh, the Warren Court, unanimously handed down one of the most expansive interpretations ever of our First Amendment guarantees to free speech and assembly. Nadine Strassen, as we start, what are the very basics of this case? Clarence Brandenburg was the leader of the Ku Klux Klan in Cincinnati, Ohio, who held a rally for his small group of followers only, invited some members of the news media to attend the rally. They filmed it and aired it on TV, showing him in a hood, Klan regalia, in front of a burning cross. Some members of his organization were brandishing guns, making racist statements about Jews and blacks. And he was convicted and sentenced one to 10 years under an Ohio statute that made it a crime to advocate violence as a form of social change. Obviously, for the next 90 minutes, we're going to dig into the particulars of this case and learn about its impact on our society. Uh, but as we get started, we have two pieces of uh, media for you. I'm going to listen to a little bit of the oral argument in the case, and you'll hear some of the particulars of this case, as Nadine Strassen just told us. Um, and please do note, as you hear it, it includes some of the offensive language used by the defendant in this case, but it's at the heart of what we're talking about tonight. And then we move on to Justice Ginsburg, then Judge Ginsburg, in her 1993 confirmation hearing, where she talks about the case's importance. Then there is a second portion of the film in which a group of people are walking or marching around a burning cross, hooded, armed, shouting profanities, in which there is a question whether or not the defendant himself said the words as attributed to him in the transcript and on page five. Uh, how far is the nigger going to, yea, send the Jews back to Israel, and so forth with the other profanities. Brandenburg against Ohio truly recognizes that free speech means not freedom of thought for those and speech for those with whom we agree, but freedom of expression for the expression we hate. Um, I think that there are always new contexts that will be presented, but that the uh, dissenting positions of Holmes and Brandeis have become the law that everyone accepts. I, I think that is the case today. Do you consider Brandenburg as one of the great milestones in the court's I, history? I certainly do, yes. Katie Fallow, as Justice Ginsburg said, there are always uh, new contexts. So there were First Amendment cases before this, and there seem to have been quite a number after it. What is it about the Brandenburg case that makes it seminal? 
Well, I think I agree with Justice Ginsburg about, in sort of two fundamental respects, that the Brandenburg decision both is one of the strongest protective decisions of free speech, and it's been around for nearly 50 years, um, and it establishes a fundamental principle that we need to allow free speech, even if it's extremely offensive or even if it advocates unlawfulness. Um, and I think that the other aspect is it's very important because it means that we are sometimes going to have to tolerate speech that we find personally repugnant. Let me tell you a little bit more about our two guests at the table, and they'll be with us to help us understand this case. Uh, Nadine Strassen is the former president of the ACLU. She served in that position from 1991 through 2008 and was both the first woman and the youngest person ever to hold the position. She's now a professor at New York Law School in Manhattan. She's also got a new book out, which is completely relevant to our discussion tonight. It's called Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. Katie Fallow is a senior attorney at Columbia University's Knight First Amendment Center. She's a former a partner at a private law firm, Jenner & Block, where she wrote a brief on a First Amendment case, uh, EMA versus Brown, which held that video games were protected speech. She also clerked in the federal courts for Judge Rosemary Barquette of the 11th Circuit, the U.S. Court of Appeals. Welcome to both of you. Great to Thank be here. You. Okay, we're going to start with the history. Uh, the, this uh, all concerns uh, a, a law, set of laws called the criminal syndication laws. I told you I was going to have a hard time with that. <laughs> Syndicalism laws. And, uh, in fact, many states had them. Uh, that, what is the history of them? When did they all start developing in this country? Uh, they were adopted starting in 1919, the World War I era, as a response to the spread or the feared spread of anarchy and communism and socialism. And uh, did they all basically do the same thing? Uh, pretty much. So the language in the Ohio statute was quite typical that it criminalized any advocacy of violence that was directed toward bringing about social change or economic change. And they also used the word terrorism. It's interesting that our case that we're looking at uh, deals with the Ku Klux Klan, but this really was a fear of communism that got this all started. So um, can you add any more history to the, the, what the country was worried about as all these states were passing laws? Yeah, I mean, I do think the Brandenburg case in general is... is interesting because it reflects a lot of social changes and cultural fears and uh, transitions that are happening throughout the 20th century. So as Nadine said, it was, they, these laws became uh, started to be passed in many states as a result of fear of communism and um, the international workers of the world and concerns about a threat to capitalism from communist sympathizers. And I think there was some sentiment uh, about fear of immigrants bringing in sort of out, you know, ideas from the outside to try to attack uh, capitalist democracy. There were three uh, key cases that the, the Supreme Court dealt with before Brandenburg. One of them we talked about in our first uh, session of uh, landmark cases, Schenck versus Ohio, mm -hmm. which was in 1919. And uh, that's famous for the phrase clear and present danger. Two other cases, Whitney versus California in 1927 and Dennis v. U.S. in 1951. Why are these cases all part of the um, lesson we need to learn about Brandenburg? Well, basically what all of these cases have in common is they dealt with one of the greatest fears of potential harm that free speech could cause, 
namely bringing about uh, uh, harm to our capitalist system or to national security more generally. And uh, the Schenck case was famous because it was in that case that the Supreme Court, through in an opinion through Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, came up with a famous test, the so-called clear and present danger test, that speech could only be punished if it satisfied what sounds like a very tough standard, but in fact, as it was actually enforced by the court in that case and the other two you mentioned, Susan, um, allowed government to punish speech that presented neither a clear nor a present danger, but allowed it to suppress political speech uh, that it disagreed with, that criticized the status quo and challenged it. What more do you want to say about these cases? Yeah, well, one thing that's very interesting about the Schenck case um, and Justice Holmes' role in it is that he he was the writer of the um, Schenck case, and he established this test of clear and present danger, um, and then and which upheld the conviction of, of socialist leafletters. But then, within I think just a year, he changed his mind, and he was in a dissent in another case where he dissented from upholding the conviction of communist sympathizers, and he started. He and Justice Brandeis started developing a much richer um, doctrine of free speech protection, but for many years in dissent, not in the majority. Uh, all of these cases, of course, are tests of the First Amendment, and we're going to pause for a moment and actually revisit the First Amendment to the Constitution. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Can either of you give uh, our audience a little bit of background on what the founders were thinking as they drafted this and why it was the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights? Well, I think that they, the founders considered the right to speech as fundamental to uh, the American system of democracy, the ability of people to debate matters of interest and to become informed for their ability to exercise their political power as well, and recognized um, the importance of letting truth uh, hopefully bubble up from uh, wide open debate. Uh, but it's interesting that in some of these, in this case of the Schenck case in 1919, prior to that, the Supreme Court had not recognized, had not struck down any law as violating the, the First Amendment. And, and the First Amendment, I think, was uh, the right to free speech was considered more important just to prevent against prior restraint, you know, where the government would actually prevent someone from saying something in advance. Uh, but there had been no cases holding that a certain law had violated the First Amendment. When you teach uh, First Amendment uh, law and, and history to your students, what do you tell them is most important? Well, I actually go back to the very first words in the entire Constitution, right? Uh, we the people, in order to create a more perfect union and so forth. So we the people are the governors in our democratic republic. How could we possibly carry out that important responsibility unless we had the most robust freedom of speech including to criticize government officials and policies and each other in very strong language. So you can't separate out freedom of speech from our overall democratic political structure. But it's also really important for individual self-fulfillment. And Justice Brandeis, who was one of the great dissenters that Katie alluded to and whose dissent, essentially dissenting opinion in, in the Whitney case was 
uh, reaffirmed by the Supreme Court in the Brandenburg case because they overturned Whitney. They embraced his dissent. Um, he said that freedom of speech is important both as an ends and as a mean. The end in itself is individual liberty to choose ourselves what we will say, hear, listen to, or not. But it's also a means to democratic self-government. But uh, the 1920s, 1910, 1920, 1930, at its height, the Klan had two million members nationwide. By the time we get to 1964, 1965, when this case is uh, germinating, what's the Klan like in the United States and what's kind of the societal attitude towards the Klan? Well, I mean, I think at the time, obviously, it was right in the middle of the civil rights movement. And so at, at the time, it was an extremely volatile and important um, social change. And people were really talking about and fighting against the kind of terrorism that the Klan had perpetrated against black Americans throughout for nearly 100 years. Um, so I think it was extremely important. and clearly animating this case is the background of the Klan's violence and terrorism. News media reports suggest that although the Klan had, uh, according to the FBI and other authorities, about 40,000 members in this time period, that there are as many as 200 bombings that, uh, that may have been uh, perpetrated by members of the Klan or their sympathizers. And of course, there's the murder of, murders of many civil rights workers. So this is the background of this. I think case. it's also important to remember, though, Susan, that at the same time, we had a growing anti-war movement, plus, the, of course, the civil rights movement, to which Katie alluded. And I think um, the Supreme Court probably was concerned about rights of demonstrators and protesters advocating various kinds of changes, both for civil rights and against civil rights, certainly their decision. Uh, was one that has protected the right of uh, rights of civil rights advocates. So let's pause and learn more about Clarence Brandenburg, who gave his name to this important First Amendment case. I'll tell you a little bit about him. He was 48 years old at the time his case went to the court, uh, but he was an unhappy person with his life circumstances. In 1958, he was laid off from the local General Electric plant where he worked and threatened to sue the company for that. He went back to his uh, television repair business, and by 1959 had to declare bankruptcy for that. Uh, in the summer of 1963, he attempted to take over the local white supremacy group, the National Association for the Advancement of White People, um, and that uh, was the the uh, context for him uh, and the event that for which he was arrested. Now, here is the timeline of his uh, his case. And it was June 28, 1964 when he organized and then also spoke at a KKK rally uh, outside of Cincinnati in, in Ohio uh, in, um, on a private farm. And I'm going to talk about that importance. Uh, what was also significant is that it wasn't just that group of people. As uh, Nadine Strassen said, that he invited local media and, in fact, a station in Cincinnati, WLWT, came to film the rally. In August 6th of 1964, he was arrested at his TV re uh, repair shop. In December of 66, they had trouble apparently uh, seating a jury on this case. Uh, he was convicted under the 1919 Ohio law. Um, he appealed that uh, to the Ohio Supreme Court, and it was rejected. And on January 6th, 1967, Clarence Brandenburg was sentenced to 10 years in prison and a $1,000 fine. 
Uh, he could have uh, gotten uh, even higher fines, so uh, uh, the, the court was a little bit lenient looking at that. So what's important to know about that timeline? Um, well, I will say one thing about, about Clarence Brandenburg to paraphrase um, Justice Frankfurter, that um, many safeguards of liberty have been forged by people who are not very nice, essentially. And I think that that's, you know, one of the things we were talking about is what was, what was the membership of the Klan at, this, at the time. Um, even uh, Clarence Brandenburg's lawyer referred to his client and his client's cronies at this rally as um, kind of silly and absurd, that they didn't actually have, they didn't really make a big impact. It wasn't um, widely attended, et cetera, but, um, but yet you still had the historical context in the background of, of the Klan's role. And I think that the fact that the civil rights uh, and the historic 1964 civil rights statute uh, was about to be enacted, it was signed into law just a few days after his speech on July 2nd. So what uh, was it significant that this was on a private property? Very much so, because it would be very difficult to argue that anybody could feel intimidated or threatened by the expression because they didn't know that it was going on. It was not aimed at them. It was also a rally among supporters. So it was like a membership meeting of people who all shared the same uh, view, exercising their freedom of association as well as their freedom of speech. You mentioned in the description that some people brought guns. Was that an important thing for the Ohio authorities? Uh, the Supreme Court didn't note it, uh, Susan, and I think in, um, in under the statute it uh, did not really make a difference because the statute criminalized mere expression, just conveying certain ideas, advocating certain ideas. So when this case was appealed to the Ohio Supreme Court, a new lawyer by the name of Alan Brown came in. Now the interesting thing about him, he was Jewish. And uh, many of, of Mr. Brandenburg's comments were anti-Semitic. Uh, well, do we know anything about Alan Brown that's important to know in the story? Um, well, I, I looked him up, and um, he was at the ACLU of Cincinnati for many years. He was a committed civil rights, civil liberties um, lawyer. Uh, he served in World War II and um, seems like a, a extremely... Uh, smart and honorable man, and he did agree to take this case even though um, uh, Clarence Brandenburg himself was not thrilled to be represented by a Jewish attorney, but he, you know, really felt committed to the cause of free speech. I actually had the opportunity to meet him in Cincinnati in the early 90s. There were some incidents of censorship taking place there in what many of us call censor natty, and he and I were going to be on a panel together. His son also said that his father, who so neutrally defended free speech uh, for the most unpopular speakers all across the political spectrum, is the only person in whose office he saw both a Ku Klux Klan leader and a Black Panther leader. You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. Uh, Clarence Brandenburg was first arrested in six, August of 64, so it took fully five years for his case to get to the Supreme Court. But this is what the court looked like in 69. The Eisenhower appointees, Chief Justice Earl Warren, John Marshall Harlan II, William Brennett, and Potter Stewart. The Roosevelt appointees, Hugo Black, William O. Douglas. Uh, the Kennedy appointees, Byron White. And Johnson appointees, Thurgood Marshall and Abe Fortas. We'll talk a little bit more about Abe Fortas's 
uh, history in the court in that particular year. This was one of Earl Warren's very last cases. He retired in June 23, 1969, two weeks after the decision. So sum up the Warren court for us. What was it noted for? Well, the Warren court was particularly noted for being uh, uh, upholding a lot of civil liberties and um, civil rights, particularly in the area of desegregation and other um, and criminal rights. Um, I do think it's it's interesting with this Brandenburg case because it is at the very end of the Warren court, and it certainly marks a, uh, a very strong um, marker of protecting speech. But to some extent, uh, the credit really for the development of the free speech principles has to go to the earlier justices of Holmes and Brandeis, because although this was a Warren Court decision, uh, the principles that they adopted and established in this case really were developed further in a more sort of rich detail in those earlier decisions. One of the other interesting stories about the justices in this case is Justice Hugo Black, who wrote one of the concurrences. And in fact, he was at one time in his earlier history a member of the Ku Klux Klan. He left in 1925. Remember earlier we told you that the 1920s was the height of Klan membership in the United States. Also a former U.S. Senator from Alabama. When he was appointed to the court in 1937, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette did an investigation about his background and Hugo Black did a radio address responding to uh, that part of his history. We're going to let you listen to that next. The insinuations of racial and religious intolerance made concerning me are based on the fact that I joined the Ku Klux Klan about 15 years ago. I did join the Klan. I later resigned. I never rejoined. I completely discontinued any association with the organization. I have never resumed it and never expect to do so. At no meeting of any organization, social, political, or fraternal, have I ever indicated the slightest departure from my steadfast faith in the unfettered right of every American to follow his conscience in matters of religion. I number among my friends many members of the colored race. I have watched the progress of its members with sympathy and admiration. Certainly, they are entitled to the full measure of protection accorded to the citizenship of our country by our Constitution and our laws. Some of my best and most intimate friends are Catholics and Jews. Let's uh, ask both, both of you what um, this part of Justice Black's background and what, what you know from studying him in his own court that he brings to his thinking on this case. What's important to know about it? I, first of all, in defense of Justice Black, he apparently joined the Klan at a time when that was just the done thing in politics in Alabama. He was one of the greatest defenders and champions of racial justice that the Supreme Court has ever seen. And as one wit put it, when he was a young man, he put on white robes and scared black people. When he was an old man, he put on black robes and scared white people. 
and he has left a real legacy for both freedom of speech and equal rights. Yeah, I, I echo what Nadine says, and you know, I know I don't think uh, his last statements. You know, generally when you say some of my friends are black people or Catholics or Jews, it seems like it's it's sort of a faint uh, excuse. But I think in his actions and his votes on the Supreme Court, he absolutely showed his commitment to. Uh, racial justice, and in this case, he also, as noted before, um, with Justice Douglas, took a, uh, a particularly strong concurrence to make sure that the incitement standard was really strongly enforced. So the case was heard by the Supreme Court. The oral argument was on February 27, 1969. Richard Nixon, President of the United States at that point. And as we mentioned earlier, the lawyer arguing on behalf of Clarence Brandenburg was Alan, Brand uh, Alan Brown. We're going to listen to a little bit of his oral argument, and I'm going to have our guests uh, talk about the legal principles he was uh, trying to convince the court about. Let's listen. These are the facts in this case. A television reporter received a telephone call indicating that if he wanted to, he could come and take movies of a Ku Klux Klan meeting. He came. He met some hooded figures and arrangements were made for the taking of a movie. A movie was taken in which a cross was burned, some figures milled about and yelled some stupid and rather uh, senseless uh, slogans, and then a single figure was panned in on who made a speech, a speech full of conditions, precedents, and reservations, and hyperbola, self-evidently stupid and silly. Another film taken is inside a house. There were guns. There were guns in this first. Uh, there were guns in both films. Meeting, in both of them. In both films, there were guns. Uh, it is also to be noted that the film was taken on a remote private farm in which apparently there is no evidence whatsoever that these people were not invitees present on that farm uh, by authority of the ownership of the farm. The case came on to trial. The state produced nothing but the film in question. The only other evidence that the state produced was basically geared to identifying the personnel involved in the film. In other words, showing that the man Brandenburg had a gun similar to the guns in the film and that he had um, <laughs> markings on his person similar to the markings and that his voice was similar. Other than this, the state offered nothing. So what do you think about the argument he's making to the court? Yeah, I think everything that Alan Brown is doing is showing that this video and this rally really amounted to nothing. It was silly. It was stupid. And what he's trying to establish is that, that nothing in this speech that was the basis for his conviction showed an intent to cause violence or was likely to cause violence or would create a clear and present danger of violence. So he was he emphasized it was a private farm, there was no one there but the people who were invited and really emphasizing the facts that this that there was no other evidence of a broader effort to create immediate violence. But in fact as we looked at the text of the Ohio statute before uh, was he, in fact, rightly found 
guilty of that, the way it was written. The, the statute was written so broadly that, in effect, it was creating a speech crime or a thought crime punishing you because of disapproval of your ideas. What is the court's role also when there's as many as 33 states that have similar laws on the books, uh, but then 14th Amendment, there are states that don't. So how does that play into their thinking? Well, it's kind of interesting, Susan, because the decision could have been written very narrowly. And I think Alan Brown's argument was saying to the court, look, he wasn't even advocating violence, right? The, so the, on the very narrowest grounds, the court could have reversed the conviction by saying, we'll assume for the sake of argument that this statute is constitutional. We don't have to reach that issue because he didn't even violate the statute as written. Instead, the court went much further and struck down that whole statute and by implication all of the others around the country. Uh, the uh, state of Ohio sent Hamilton County Prosecutor Leonard Kirshner to represent their interest before the Supreme Court. Here is a portion of his argument. I believe that the Ohio criminal syndicalism law is constitutional. I have cited various authorities uh, relative to my beliefs in this matter in my brief. I believe that the basic matter before this court is the application of the evidence as was presented to the jury to determine whether or not there was sufficient evidence upon which a jury could return a verdict. I believe that in this case, when counsel says uh, sending the Jews back to Israel, let's give them back to the gar dark garden, that this might not involve violence, I would like him perhaps in his reply to explain how the statement, bury the niggers, quote, unquote, would not constitute a violent form of action. So the Ohio attorney is suggesting what about his language and its intent? Well, he's suggesting that it could cause violence, but interestingly enough, since there was no evidence in that case, he had to come up with a hypothetical. And he said, suppose uh, that Clarence Brandenburg had said, bury the Negroes in Harlem, to which Justice Thurgood Marshall, the first and then only African-American justice on the court, said, well, he wouldn't survive long if he said that. And Alan Brown, the ACLU lawyer, in his rebuttal said, by the way, that statement by Justice Marshall, if made in Ohio, could itself violate the Ohio syndical, I can't do it either, criminal, criminal syndicalism law, because it may be seen as encouraging violence against, uh, against the, the speaker, against Brandenburg. Katie, this was a unanimous 8-0 to zero decision. Are per curiams always unanimous? No. In fact, uh, I was surprised to refresh my recollection in preparation for this uh, program that Bush versus Gore was a per curiam opinion. That was the one that um, ultimately uh, resulted in, in George Bush, W. Bush becoming president, for those who don't remember. Uh, and there were many, many separate opinions that individual justices issued, but uh, and the vote was as split as it could be, five to four, and yet there was a per curiam opinion. What was the story about Abe Fortas? Well, it's complicated because uh, there were some allegations that he 
had too close a relationship with uh, President Johnson, with whom he had been very close politically, that that continued after he was on the court, which was uh, improper, violating separation of powers concerns uh, and the impartiality uh, of a, a justice. Uh, and yet, as Katie said, there were certain financial allegations as well. I'm quite frankly not clear what it was that uh, in particular propelled him to resign, but he had some financial relationships with some uh, entities that were themselves being investigated for improprieties. And had he been suggested as a possible Earl Warren replacement? I'm sorry, all of this came out. He was nominated to be, become uh, Chief Justice. There were hearings, apparently it was the first time there were uh, Senate confirmation hearings for that kind of elevation. And it was those who were opposed to him, perhaps ideologically, uh, raising some of these other issues. Here is an excerpt from the per curiam decision. We are here confronted with a statute which, by its own words and as applied, purports to punish mere advocacy and to forbid, on pain of criminal punishment, assembly with others merely to advocate the described type of action. Such a statute falls within the condemnation of the First and the Fourteenth Amendments. Comments? Yeah, I mean, this was a watershed moment. Um, the court had sort of inched towards that result, uh, and there hadn't been that many um, su Supreme Court decisions for nearly 20 years between the Dennis case and the Brandenburg case. But what they are saying is that mere advocacy, even of violence or unlawful action, cannot be pun punished under the First Amendment. And uh, in later cases, there have been questions of what does this mean? What does the test mean? You have to in intend to incite violence. It has to be uh, like, and it has to be imminent. The violence has to be imminent. And there's a question of what does imminent mean? And it has to be likely to incite violence. So you look at not just the, co the text of the speech or the content of the speech itself, but also the, co the context in which it takes place. How likely would it be to trigger violence? And you see in the, the case, the Hess case, which uh, came up about in about four, 1973, maybe? 72. Uh, 72, mm -hmm. was an anti-war protester who had said, we'll take to the effing streets later. And the court held that was not sufficiently imminent harm to uphold a conviction. So it's suggesting that even if violence were to occur even a matter of hours after the speech, that could not be punished. Uh, there are two concurrences, Justice Black and Justice Douglas. Here's a bit of the excerpt uh, of an excerpt from Justice Douglas. The example usually given by those who would punish speech is the case of one who falsely shouts fire in a crowded theater. This is, however, a classic case where speech is brigaded with action. They are indeed inseparable, and a prosecution can be launched for the overt acts actually caused. Apart from rare instances of that kind, speech is, I think, immune from prosecution. Douglas, along with Black, uh, was probably the most absolutist in terms of protecting freedom of speech. And uh, Black, used, who joined in, in Douglas's concurrence, uh, used to quote the First Amendment, which, as you read earlier, says, uh, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. And, and, and Black would say, and Douglas echoed, no law means no law. And so uh, they tried to make this distinction between speech and conduct, but not quite, because it's speech that is so closely tied
tied or brigaded, as Douglas said, to conduct, that the only way you can prevent the dangerous conduct is by suppressing the speech. But again, it has to be an emergency situation. It has to be suppression only as a last resort if persuasion or uh, law enforcement doesn't do the job. One thing that's interesting about the Brandenburg decision is, although it involved the Ku Klux Klan and Burning Cross, the case really didn't turn on the issue of speech that would be considered colloquially hate speech. It wasn't about the offensiveness of the speech. It was about whether it was likely to cause violence. But the rule established in Brandenburg is part of the greater evolution of the Supreme Court during the 20th century toward instead of having a balancing test about speech where you you weigh the harm of the speech and the government's interest in regulating it against free speech almost equally, that putting the thumb firmly on the scale in favor of First Amendment. And so in all of those cases involving, you know, flag burning, which is you know, considered extremely offensive to people and uh, an argument that why should we protect that kind of speech which is so hurtful to people, drawing on the principles of Brandenburg where you start with, as Douglas says, and I think his concurrence, you know, free speech is the rule, not the exception. Um, and the cases that we also worked on, which was even uh, sort of in between those periods of time or that I worked on, involved attempts to regulate video games or other kinds of violent media, and the argument being that, for instance, there were cases arising out of some of the school shooting cases in Paducah and Columbine, where the plaintiffs argued that uh, producers of movies or video games depicting violence should be held accountable for the, the violence that occurred. And, um, and then there were a number of state laws that would restrict the sale of violent video games, and the argument being that this kind of speech leads to violence. It encourages people to act violently. And in a number of courts, and we had argued in those courts that under the Brandenburg case, you can't show that a, a, a video game or a movie or a book that depicts violence is intending to incite violence. So I want to say thanks uh, to our two guests, Katie Fallow and Nadine Strassen, for helping us understand the history and the importance of this case. And as we close, a thanks to our partners at the National Constitution Center uh, for their help on this series. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.